Over time, the popular conception of any historical figure tends to get flattened. All the rough edges get buffed out until you're left with a simple understanding that won't ever match up with the complexity found in any human being. So it is with Steve Jobs. We remember what he did and the successes he had, but when you smooth out his story, his failures tend to fade away. Now, previously in the series, I covered XServe. That was one of Apple's many failed attempts to figure out what it was going to be when it grew up. But it's a failure that's largely forgotten. When you smooth out a story, you can also miss a lot of the quirks of a person. And Steve Jobs was a quirky guy. In general, his instincts led him to make good decisions. That may be an understatement. But sometimes they were applied imperfectly. And occasionally the result was failure. I'd argue these failures were a function of the same process that led to the success Steve Jobs and Apple found. If you're worried about failing, you're never going to succeed. And there is no product that more embodies Apple's early 2000s failures and the particular quirks of Steve Jobs than one of Apple's quirkiest Macs ever. It sprung forth from the mind of Steve Jobs and flopped so badly that it was discontinued a year later. It's 20 Macs for 2020. I'm Jason Snell. This is number eight, the Power Mac G4 Cube. In the year 2000, Apple is in a precarious position. Steve Jobs has been back at Apple for three years, and he's rapidly changing the company's culture and the perception of it in the world at large. The G3 iMac is a hit. The iPod, the product that will truly change Apple's trajectory, is more than a year away. And flush with the success of the revitalized Mac product line, which features bold new products in all four product quadrants, Apple introduces a product for the fifth quadrant. This is our product strategy that we announced about two and a half years ago, the four quadrants. And it served us very well. We filled them all in, and we've even had a chance to go around and update most of them two or three times each to constantly keep them fresh and aggressive. So what Apple had done was take the power of the Power Mac G4 and combine it with lessons they had learned from designing laptops and iMacs to create something smaller. We have miniaturized all that power into something this size, an 8-inch cube. An 8-inch cube. Unbelievable. Another way of looking at this is if this is the Power Mac G4 and you could break it into four equal parts, we have miniaturized all the power into just one of those parts which is an 8-inch cube. Unbelievable. Steve Jobs was very excited. This was a product that broke out of the boring old four quadrants. It showed off Apple's design skills, its technical prowess, and its foresight about where the computer industry was headed. Here's Stephen Hackett. I feel like with Apple and Mac hardware specifically, there's a slider somewhere between form and function. And the cube was just all the way over on form. That's not to say it was a bad computer. It was a G4. It didn't run as fast as the towers. It was limited. But everything about this machine is about how it looks. And all of the design elements are about you're going to have this 8-inch cube floating in a clear acrylic. And if your technology makes it in there, that's great. And if not, you know, that's okay, too. Here's John Syracuse. 
This poor computer. Uh, it gets a bad rap, and in many ways it was a bad computer, but not for the reasons I think everyone thinks it was a bad computer. What did it have going for it? Obviously, it was a beautiful piece of modernist sculpture. It was a little computing cube covered in a centimeter thick of clear plastic with all of the sort of jewel refraction type of uh, visual effects that that made. The computer itself was suspended in midair in there. Of course, you could turn it upside down and the handle popped out and you can pull out the original naked robotic core like it's the uh, core of a nuclear reactor. It came with those little, again, clear plastic innards, uh, the little orb speakers that were little spheres. And you would pair it with the Apple Cinema display with the very thick translucent feet on the side and the little lean back stand type thing. This entire system looked like a computer from the future. It looked like a movie computer. It looked like something someone would do in a mock-up or a sharper image catalog. Like this can't possibly be real, but it was a real system. And it was a pretty okay computer. Here's John Gruber. The Cube is probably the least successful technology product ever that's made its way into the Museum of Modern Art. Which brings me to the various quirks of Steve Jobs. The preferences and peccadilloes that may have aided him in making good decisions most of the time, or didn't generally stand in the way of his good product sense. But if you observed Steve Jobs long enough, you noticed certain themes that would keep re-emerging. And the G4 Cube was a symphony of those themes. The problems with it were all the problems that Steve Jobs didn't think were problems with the computers. Not really upgradable. Why would you ever need to upgrade it? We put everything you need in this computer. It's fine the way it is, right? Obviously, slots are anything that normally come with computers that start to push into this price range. And then a bunch of features that seem really cool, but weren't actually that great. One of Steve Jobs' fascinations was the ideal of the black box. Apple's designs frequently attempt to create small, dense objects that are packed with as much technology as possible. Wrap that small object in a pleasant exterior, and you've created a bit of magic technology. Don't look inside. You'll spoil the surprise. Oh, and if the black box could be a black cube, all the better. Or as Stephen Hackett and James Thompson put it, Steve Jobs loved cubes. Steve's continuing obsession with cube-shaped computers. You have this, you have the New York Apple Store. <laughs> it was the next cube in 1990 in the G4 Cube a decade later. Steve says the words, an eight-inch cube, in an excited voice so many times during the introduction for that machine. An eight-inch cube. An eight-inch cube. An eight-inch cube. This eight-inch cube. An eight-inch cube. The dude just loved cubes. But your black box isn't good if it's got a noisy, annoying fan blowing all the time. It was another example of Jobs' hatred of spinning fans, right? That was an issue with the original Compact Max. This thing famously didn't have a fan. This was definitely a Steve Jobs design because he, like me, hated fan noise. This computer has no fans inside it. It uses chimney cooling. It's got a little opening in the bottom where air can come in. And the super hot computer makes all the air inside it hot. And that hot air rises through a vent in the top that makes the whole thing look like a tissue box. And that pulls in cool air from the bottom. All this power in an 8-inch cube has cooled without a fan. And so it runs in virtual silence. It has no fan noise, but it had a spinning hard drive in there. So you were going to hear something. You know, it's not like it was totally silent, but it was still very impressive. It did run warm. You know, a G4 it was serious power in the day. Cooling with no fans should work fine, 
But if it starts to get too hot in there, there's nothing that can be done to make it better, except eventually your computer gets too hot and it turns off. Now, I could do a whole separate podcast series on how much Steve Jobs hated buttons. Steve Jobs hated buttons so much, that's why he always wore a turtleneck. But it's true. And I'd argue that his inclination to remove physical buttons from hardware led to a lot of good places, keeping design sleek, minimizing the amount of training required to understand how to use a device. But it could be taken too far, like on that one iPod shuffle that had literally no buttons at all, and on the Power Mac G4, which shipped with a touch-sensitive area on the top of the computer in lieu of a physical power button. I want to talk about the touch-sensitive power button. So sensitive that it could seemingly detect the presence of fingers anywhere in the room. The capacitive power button. (laughs) This is the worst as far as I'm concerned. It was super cool that you could put your finger on the top of this, you know, centimeter of thick, clear plastic, and it would just turn off when you touched it. I was staying with a friend in California, one WWDC, and the guest room we were staying in had a G4 cube in it. It would frequently go to sleep or power off while you were trying to use it. Here's Harry McCracken. I remember discovering that it was very hard to get a CD in and out of the drive without accidentally turning the computer off. A rare example of Apple actually doing something that people accuse them of all the time, which is aiming for aesthetics in a way that makes for bad design, which was totally true about that particular bit of functionality. You could also accidentally brush that button and it would put your computer to sleep, or you could brush that button and it would wake it up. I just remember hearing stories about people just reaching for a book and you know, their forearm, it would hit the button because they were reaching over this cube. It would also spring to life at four o'clock in the morning with nobody anywhere near it and wake you up with the startup chime through those round Harman Kardon speakers at full volume. And after a couple of days, we eventually learned to unplug the thing at night because it was so annoying. I reviewed this computer for Ars Technica, so I had this in my house for a while and lived with it, and it was like the machine was haunted. This computer would go to sleep and you couldn't wake it up. And that was bad. And sometimes it would just turn itself off and you didn't know why. It did not give you a reassuring feeling. It seemed like a computer that you were afraid to touch and that had a mind of its own and very often did things unexpected that were bad. Like turn itself on or just turn itself off. Now, I don't want to say that all of Steve Jobs' quirks led to bad outcomes on the G4 Cube. He often showed an understanding that professional-level products required easy access for servicing, although, admittedly, Apple has lost the plot on this point in the years since. But the G4 Cube had a pretty amazing access story via a handle accessible by flipping the thing over. You could just pull that handle and yank the thing out, and it came out in two seconds, and it was very easy to do, and it it came right out. It wasn't a, a fidgety maneuver. It was a cool, fun thing to do. They did it on stage. You push down on this handle, and it pops up, and you literally lift all of the technology up. This is a computer that is more fun to demonstrate when it is off than to use when it's on. It was 1799, which in terms of a professional computer system in 2020 might not seem like an enormous amount. But in 2000, that was priced $200 more than the base model Power Mac G4. More to the point, the perception was that with the G4 Cube, you were going to be paying more for less. Or maybe more accurately, you'd be sacrificing price and convenience for style. Is it Steve Jobs' last failure? Maybe. So many of his failures were getting ahead of himself and letting the team get ahead of it. I mean, the whole next era was they were too far ahead of themselves, and they were selling these $10,000 workstations in a market to what should have been an audience that had 
two, three, four thousand dollars to spend. And the iMac G3, which is still for sale this time, and the the Power Mac Towers, you had two really good options for desktops. And you know maybe it could have done better if it was more aggressive in pricing, but it was seventeen ninety nine new, which was two hundred dollars more than the tower that was uh, announced at the same time. Now, it was a touch faster as far as CPU speed, but it didn't have as good as graphics. It definitely wasn't as expandable, and you couldn't get a dual processor option like you could in the towers by this point. It just couldn't keep up with like the the standalone G4s in terms of putting faster and presumably hotter processors. Here's Shelley Brisbane. It instantly received a lot of mocking based on the fact that its specs did not compare to even the other Apple products that were out at the time. You couldn't enhance it because of the physical... You couldn't add processor to it because of the size of the cards that it would take. There were bigger processor cards out there that you just couldn't fit in it. And it just didn't hold up by comparison if you were thinking about a machine that you would keep several years. I don't know who it was for. I think it was for people who wanted like a fancy computer in their fancy office, but that's not a market really. Now, when I talked to John Gruber for this story, he offered his own failure analysis of the G4 Cube. His take on it is pretty straightforward, that Apple bit off more than it could chew. My die on a hill argument with the G4 Cube is that the idea was sound, but it should have been the G3 Cube. And that would have solved two things. It would have made it a lot less expensive and it would have kept it cooler. And I've made this argument and people have said, well, but then it would have been too slow. Well, the G3 wasn't too slow. The G3 was a tremendously successful CPU line for Apple through that whole era. It just would have meant that the first cube wouldn't have been that fast. And then they could have gone from there. And if it had been a success in the market, it would have inevitably gotten faster over time and eventually, you know, would have, I guess, gotten the G4. And if it had stayed in the lineup, would have gotten Intel chips. And, you know, maybe it sort of would have shrunk and we'd end up with the Mac Mini anyway. But something like that wasn't a failed idea. It was just too much. And compare and contrast with the first MacBook Air, which was way thinner and lighter than any laptop we'd seen before and famously was pulled out of an envelope. But the one thing it wasn't is it wasn't fast. So pick one thing, right? So if you're going to make this cube, the one thing to pick to make radical is the size and the industrial design. And then making it a high-end performing device would be something for a future generation. They tried to do too much at once and make it both a state-of-the-art G4 workstation and give it this amazing design. And I feel like that made it too expensive and too hot. I don't think a G3 would have really helped that much because part of the appeal of this computer is it's supposed to be a luxury item and luxury items should have some amount of power. They're not going to have the expandability of a full-fledged Power Mac, but if you're going to pay this amount of money and have this fancy thing, you don't want to underperform. It's like getting a car in your driveway that looks like a Lamborghini, but has the performance of a Camry. Uh, that's not a product that anybody wants. I think it was sort of like design, Steve Jobs, maybe Johnny Ive, like that crew kind of got a project that was like, okay, this is going to be design first and engineering second. And it's not to downplay the engineering. The engineering's incredible that it worked at all. But it was definitely a matter of Apple going too far down the road of looks and how someone should feel when they see it. 
These days, it's rare that an Apple product cycle goes by without some sort of scandal about some alleged flaw somewhere. The G4 Cube was one of the first to be the target of one of these, and it was all about the clear plastic block that it was enclosed in. I think that was one of the early sort of gates in terms of Apple products. It's like one big injection molded piece. Like you could, when you took the core out, you looked and that plastic thing was just one piece. And apparently it was at the time, and maybe it still is for all I know, very difficult to manufacture that piece of plastic because it's clear. So any kind of internal flaw during the sort of molding process or whatever they use to make this plastic was visible because it's all clear. And every single person who had one of these could see if they looked real close quote-unquote cracks in the plastic now in my experience with the one i had they weren't actually cracks but they were flaws in the material so instead of it just being clear all the way through you'd see these little hairlines around the edges of where the holes were there was all the fuss about the the cracks in the plastic and whether they were cracks or whether they were just injection mold lines one of the main benefits of the computer was how beautiful it was if you're going to sell this me this computer and tell me you will love looking at it because it looks like a beautiful jewel you can't have flaws in that jewel. Diamonds are rated by the number of, what are they called? Uh, inclusions, and every single G4 cube had plenty of inclusions. And the exact type of person who would value the merits of this computer enough to deal with the problems also is going to be super bothered by the inclusions. This was an included computer. A Mac that showed so much promise that clearly got Steve Jobs so excited on stage in 2000 turned out to be a flop. And Apple knew it immediately. Here's a 2017 interview with current Apple CEO Tim Cook at the Oxford Foundry. We shipped a product called the Cube. It was a very important product to us. We put a lot of love into it. We put enormous engineering into it. It was an engineering marvel. It was a spectacular failure commercially from the first day almost. I rewatched all the introduction stuff today. And they were so pleased with it. And it just fizzled out after a year. It was discontinued after a year. <laughs> this is a very strange chapter in Apple's history. I love my cube dearly, but it was just not the right idea, unfortunately. I don't know how few of them they sold, but any company, if you sell an incredibly small number of something that you plan to sell a lot of, like if, you're, if your sales projections miss by, you know, 6,000%, it's pretty easy to kill a product. I mean, so even if the CEO loved it, you can just say, look, the numbers don't lie. When Apple did kill it, they issued a press release talking about the fact they were killing it, which is not something mm. that companies usually do. They, they tend to hope that people will not quite notice that they've gotten rid of an embarrassing failure. But Apple sort of gloried in the fact that they had tried it and it didn't work and they were moving on. Although they did talk in the press release about there being a small chance it might come back someday. Now, I just want to take a moment to note how weird the press release Harry mentioned really is. Apple puts Power Mac G4 Cube on ice. Cupertino, California, July 3rd, 2001. Apple today announced that it will suspend production of the Power Mac G4 Cube indefinitely. The company said there is a small chance it will reintroduce an upgraded model of the unique computer in the future, but that there are no plans to do so at this time. Now, as Harry pointed out, who puts out a press release announcing you're discontinuing a product in the first place? And why, in that press release, would you make this bizarre claim that there is a small chance 
it might come back and then immediately undercut that by saying there are no current plans to do so. Could you not have asked somebody who knows before putting out the press release? My best guess is that this press release was for an audience of one, that it was cushioning the blow of this failure at least a little bit for the person who cared about this product the most, Steve Jobs. Steve killed his darlings in this case. He very much loved it. And it's kind of a shame that it did die so early because I I do love it. Sorry, Cube. Although it was a commercial failure, the Cube turned out to be a cult product. A friend of mine had a Cube and was obsessed with it. It's sort of like those fans of old discontinued car models who delight in keeping them running and finding new parts that work with them in its afterlife because it became such a cult favorite for people who were, you know, bring back the cube. There was a user group. They had a website. They had shirts. They were at Macworld and they were, I don't know whether they were trying to bring back the cube or just enhance it with new processors or ran, they were tricking it out as best they could. But there was a group of people and the Mac is full of groups of underdogs, but there was a group of people who continued to advocate for the cube for quite some time after it was gone. For a long time after it was put on ice, there was a pretty serious scene around people modding them. And so for a long time, you could find forms of people putting upgraded components that Apple never thought about putting in a cube. You could find people putting PCs in them, people just upgrading them and putting fans in them, all sorts of things because the design was so cool and unique. It lent itself to people being really passionate about it. There are people that love those machines, and I think there's like little owners' clubs of people that have upgraded the cube beyond its natural lifespan. So, beloved by some, dismissed by many. Now, you could argue that building the G4 Cube allowed Apple to investigate some technologies that would feed future products, and I think that's true. It's very hard for me not to see a direct line, for example, between the G4 Cube and the Mac Mini. When they revisited this, they did it at the whole opposite end of the spectrum with the Mini, which is the cheapest Mac we've ever made. Not beautiful, translucent, expensive with its own satellite speakers, like totally not that at all. Of course, you could also connect a line between the G4 Cube and other Apple failures like the 2013 Mac Pro, which turned the black box into a cylinder and faced a lot of the same issues that the G4 Cube did. So let's return once more to Steve Jobs. Yes, he had his quirks, and perhaps they led the design of the Power Mac G4 Cube down a path that made it a failure. But there's this other quirk of Steve Jobs, one that served him very well over the years. He could invest his heart and soul into something, but once an argument or evidence showed that his assumptions were wrong, he didn't cling to his old view out of ego. Let's go back to someone who knew him well, Tim Cook, in that 2017 interview. We had to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, we miss this one. And I think it's important to be able to do that. This was another thing Steve taught me, actually. Something that you were so passionate about, you've sold it to everybody. You've got to be willing to look yourself in the mirror and say, I was wrong. Steve, of everyone I've known in life, could be the most avid proponent of some position. 
And within minutes or days, if new information came up, you would think that he never, ever thought that before. And so the G4 cube died. Or I guess it remains on ice. Who knows? Maybe it will return someday, but probably not. Either way, it's a part of the legacy of Steve Jobs that's worth remembering, even if it makes how we think about him a little more complicated. This has been 20 Max for 2020. It was written by me, Jason Snell. My thanks to John Syracusa, Stephen Hackett, Shelley Brisbane, James Thompson, Harry McCracken, and John Gruber. Quinn Rose was the voice of Apple PR. The Tim Cook interview was from the Said Business School at Oxford University. Brian Hamilton did post-production work. I'll be back next week with number seven.